Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the brand new podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the not quite brand new director of Chatham House. And every week I'm going to be joined by Chatham House experts, as well as journalists, policymakers and diplomats, to discuss the critical events shaping our world today. I've been here about six weeks, none of them quiet. We live in excessively interesting times, and that's just the UK. The point of this podcast is to bring you the best of our Chatham House people and all their insight and depth on at least a couple of the big international questions of the week, plus a guest for us to test our ideas on. And why independent thinking? Well, that's the banner we've marched under for many of the 102 years of our existence. We were set up after the First World War to bring analytical rigour to international affairs. On this podcast this week, alongside the resignation of Liz Truss, we'll be discussing the latest in Ukraine and the Chinese Communist Party's 20th Party Congress. What does the new tough language on Taiwan mean? Is China really cutting itself off from the world? And in Ukraine, is victory possible? How should we respond to the threat of nuclear weapons from Russia? Don't miss our extra section at the very end, recorded just hours after Liz Truss's resignation, where we reflect on what all this means for Britain's place in the world. My guests this week are Arisia Lutsevich, Research Fellow and Head of our Ukraine Forum in our Russia-Eurasia programme. Hi. Good to be with you, Brian. Great to have you here. And then we have Dr Yujir, our Senior Research Fellow on China. Very good to have you. Hello, Bronwyn. Fantastic. And I'm delighted that we're joined as well by Gideon Rackman, the Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator at the Financial Times, who indeed hosts his own podcast. On which you appeared. So thanks, thank you very much, Bronwyn. Thanks for being on ours. We're starting with Ukraine, and these recent attacks represent Russia's most brazen attempt to get some kind of concessions from Ukrainian cities since the start of the invasion. Arisia, what do you make of these this latest uh, week of attacks, drone attacks and so on on the cities? Uh, all of this means that Putin is not achieving even its mini objective, if you want, of this war, where he wanted to take full control of Donbass region. And uh, after annexing those territories, he even started losing the territory he annexes. So the recent drone attacks and civilian infrastructure, especially electricity grid, Putin wants to freeze Ukraine into uh, submission. And this is the goal, to break the will, make Ukraine uninhabitable, difficult, create a new wave of refugees, perhaps, to the European Union, make Ukrainian economy tank even more, which it's already taking a heavy loss. But actually, it creates, again, the opposite result, where Ukrainians remain more united. In the day when Russia attacked uh, two weeks ago, Ukrainians raised five million pounds for new drones as a, as a response to that vicious attack. And they seem to be quite good in marshalling Western assistance again, especially for air defense to protect Ukrainian cities. So all that sounds quite optimistic in a way for Ukraine at this point. I wanted to ask you one thing about the the quality of the information we're getting. You're talking to people in Ukraine all the time. Can we be confident that this picture of uh, Russian retreat, if you like, Russia being pushed back by Ukraine, that that is something that we can have confidence in? Well, there's quite a lot of international attention, both media, Ukrainian, uh, civil society, journalists and Ukrainians are sharing quite a lot of information. We have satellite images, we have journalists going actually in these deoccupied areas and seeing quite grave, again, war crimes and violations of rules of war. So we Ukraine is, of course, censoring some of the information about Ukraine's own losses. Uh, but because this counteroffensive has been carefully planned and chopping off 
of Russian supply lines led to Russians simply fleeing and even leaving a large munition storages where some analysts now say that Russia is the largest donor, if you want, of tanks and artillery supplies to Ukrainian advancing units. Gideon, how do we respond to this threat which hangs over it all of uh, Russia possibly using tactical nuclear weapons? That is a huge question. I mean, obviously, the Americans have made clear that they have spoken directly to the Russians. And in the words of Jake Sullivan, the US national security advisor, has threatened them with catastrophic consequences, which implies some kind of military action. Uh, President Macron of France um, said explicitly what's often been said in private, that that military action would probably not involve the use of nuclear weapons. It would probably be a conventional response. He got he got criticised for that, for removing that ambiguity. Yes, and I, I think that, you know, Western leaders are walking a very delicate tightrope because I think one of the reasons Macron talked about that is that one of the many things they're concerned about is panic in the West. So they're trying to almost get us used to the idea that, you know, if the worst happened and they used a tactical nuclear weapon, it wouldn't be Armageddon the next day. Incidentally, Biden has actually used the word Armageddon. Uh, But one of the things I do find a little concerning is that talking to Western policymakers, they they, they will start their conversations in relatively reassuring terms, saying, you know, we see no evidence that the Russians are making actual physical preparations to use a nuclear weapon. We would see that. But then they will say things like, well, you know, how would we control the panic in the West if there was uh, if there was a tactical nuclear weapon? Should we be preparing people for the idea that it might be quite, you know, kill relatively few people? Uh, They're also saying, how can we get the message out to the global south that this is something that would change the entire world? And so they're trying to kind of mobilize international opinion to put pressure on the Russians to take this nuclear threat off the table. Sorry, Bronwyn, for jumping in. I spoke yesterday, actually, with Ukrainian security inte- intelligence officials and asking exactly the question about how do they assess risks currently at the moment. And what I hear is that there's still Russia has still quite a lot of conventional up its sleeve. Let's be honest. They may escalate from the north with dragging Belarus into the war. Uh, in the Kherson front, there may be a false flag operations around exploding a big dam to actually flood in villages and stop Ukrainian advance drones attacks, Iranian This is a really good missiles. point. So mm. this is actually one of the things that we ought to be focusing on. No, never mind, the, the, well, not never mind, the question of, of nuclear yeah. weapons, but uh, actually perhaps the more immediate threat to, to the Ukrainian advances. I agree. There are lots of escalatory steps they yeah. can take short of nukes. Yeah. Yujia, yeah. I wanted to bring you in. Where does China in this? It's obviously watching this very closely. I noted the bit when President Putin said, I recognize that China may have questions, and one of them presumably is whether Russia could lose. Well, perhaps this is the biggest diplomatic misgiving that Xi Jinping has produced since he came to power 10 years ago, I would say. And China, I think, is now have that sense of regret. Um, they consider the current Russia's invasion towards Ukraine has almost become a conundrum for China's diplomacy, but also for the Chinese economy as well. Bear in mind that Ukraine was one of the major grain sub, um, resource um, for, the, for the Chinese. Well, if we're talking about food security, the Chinese deeply concerned about its own food security, and precisely because those two countries supply the majority part of the um, agricultural products for China. So it's not just a matter of foreign affairs now, but it's really a matter of the domestic economic situation for. Arusia Winter, how much does it affect this? 
It will be a very difficult winter for Ukrainians. And President Zelensky is preparing population. Ukrainians are already saving energy. They are asked not to use, you know, hey, energy uh, intensive <laughs> washing machines and uh, hair dryers, you know, uh, over a certain period of time. Uh, over these recent attacks, Russia has destroyed around 30% of Ukrainian electricity grid. I mean, this is a big uh, loss, but uh, Ukrainians expected this. They're not taking it back. When I was, for example, talking to a couple of mayors, they are stocking up generators for polyclinics and hospitals, buying wood, making little portable uh, um, uh, storages of uh, things in basements so that people can heat up generators. But of course, this will be a very, very heavy winter because this is kind of the last chance Putin has to break again Ukraine's defiance and to also convince the West that simply it's uh, they cannot mount this kind of uh, uh, resistance to to Russian aggression. Mm. And what about the effect militarily? Is it going to produce a kind of stalemate where each side is stuck for many, many cold months? I think depending on supplies of, uh, you know, armored vehicles, artillery and the weather, Ukrainians will be trying to advance as much as they can before the spring, even during winter times, because Russians are also preparing their new force to uh, counterattack Ukrainians. So it will be a very still active military campaign from what we can see from artillery to troop movements to fortification lines on different sides. So there will be a lot to watch. Gideon, you were talking in your column this week about the, trying to keep room for diplomacy. How would that work? Well, with, with great difficulty. But I was struck that, you know, speaking to some of the military people um, who are quite hawkish on the need to support Ukraine, supply them with weaponry. Military people where? Uh, in, in, in the which West. Country? Yeah, right. in, in the West will do. <laughs> I, that's, sorry, that was the agreement I reached. Uh, yeah, that's but, uh, they, but they were saying, look, you know, military is... We're, we're not going to sort of completely defeat Russia in the way that... Uh, you know, Nazi Germany was completely defeated. In the end, there's going to have to be a peace settlement. And they felt that we need to be, even if you don't get anywhere immediately, just keeping those lines open and that not enough of that's happening. And there's some talk of maybe using third parties. There's a lot of talk of the Turks who, at least in, you know, it's a small deal, but the grain deal that allowed Ukrainian grain out to the world was negotiated partly through Turkey. Now, President Erdogan is not exactly the most stable or reliable partner, but he does have ties to all three, uh, to, to, to Washington, to Brussels and to Moscow. So I think there's hopes that you could revive that, but uh, not huge expectations because, in fact, both sides' positions have hardened over the course of the war. I mean, if you remember at the beginning of the war, the Ukrainians were actually talking to the Russians. But after Bukha, after all the war crimes, and indeed possibly after Ukrainian advances, there seems much less appetite for that in Ukraine. And the Russian position is also very, very uncompromising. They want to control a significant part of, of the Ukrainian territory. And Ukraine is now, as you said, after all the war crimes, the horrors and the loss of life, not uh, prone to um, compromise at, at all. Eugenia, is China have any role, do you think, in trying to bring about an end to this? Well, I sense that change of language and shift in tones from Beijing. You know, if judging the, the statement between the Chinese foreign minister when he met the Ukrainian foreign minister in April, and it was all about, OK, China will step away. Was however, the second meeting they had in September at a general UN General Assembly meeting, that seems to be China would get very interested into not just on the negotiation, but also the post, um, post-crisis construction. Uh, for Ukraine. But however, given China's pro-Russia neutrality, I think it will be very hard for Beijing to become that sense of, you know, neutral 
uh, negotiator to come in to help with this uh, crisis. Mm. And do you think that China has found this a deterrent uh, in thinking about Taiwan? Surely deterrent is the right word. Uh, but on the other hand, I think China is also quite careful come to realize um, that Taiwan's, the so-called Taiwan question is different from the Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion towards Ukraine, and also the economic damage for China, not just for China, but for the world. It will be colossal. Therefore, Xi Jinping is not willing to take that risk at expenses of that letting billions of the Chinese population living standard drastically decline. And that is something related to his party legitimacy, and he cannot not afford to do that. Let's use that as a reason to turn to China, to Xi Jinping, and to the Party Congress this week, where he sought to show a very strong hand to the world, didn't he? Well, he showed a strong hand to the world, but he also showed very strong hand, even stronger hand, for his own party members by saying, look, uh, all relationship with the West is going to be quite uh, uh, worsening than compared with the past, and is the struggle is here to stay. So perhaps the party will have to prepare the worst that China may cut off from the rest of the world. And that seems to be the language for me. It's about security. It is about self-reliance. Um, after that two and a half an hour speech, um, my sense is that at the end of the day, China comes to the realization Perhaps it can no longer just rely on Western liberal democracies generating its economic growth. And China will have to turn to the global south. And China will have to turn, look into itself. Really big themes there, which I want to dig into in a moment. Mm. But just give us a, a feel of what that speech was like. Two and a half hours, you said. Um, two and a half hours. I mean, it wasn't much cheer. Um, it was not two and a half hours compared with five years ago, whereas with all the flowers and you know, that crowning glory, that sense of glory is somehow it lost this time, uh, five years after. And all we get is the language. Firstly, China wasn't fast enough to develop its own critical, important industry, including um, semiconductors. And secondly, where lack of sufficient talents, homegrown talents, to be able to solve those reddens of the scientific innovation. And thirdly, or food supply is still not secure enough. So all I hear so far is that China foresee this conflicts with the United States is here to stay, and it will only get worse, but not better. And perhaps this is Beijing's moment of truth to, pre- to prepare the worst yet to come. Yeah, I mean, I think that alongside uh, the Congress, um, almost there was a vindication of what she was saying in the sense that the U.S. announced uh, last week the most drastic uh, restrictions on America's company's ability to cooperate, uh, invest in, or sell to the Chinese semiconductor industry. So drastic that my colleague Ed Luce calls it a declaration of economic warfare on China. Now, in some ways, it reminds me of the whole uh, Russia... Ukraine thing in the sense that we are in a process of mutual escalation now. You know, each side, you can go back and back and back and say, who started it? You could say this all, this kind of dislocation started back in 2008 when the Chinese banned Google and Facebook and so on. But each side now sees the other as an adversary and is is talking the language of interdependence. And given these are the two largest economies in the world, so integrated that at one point the historian Neil Ferguson was referring to them as Chimerica, uh, you know, now um, it's really a huge threat to the globalized economic system. We can see it unraveling before our eyes. 
after these decades, these years, as you said, of getting more and more integrated, the world using Chinese technology, totally. Chinese, uh, you know, cheap toys, whatever. Um, what is this going to mean in terms of decoupling? Well, it, that means um, China will not as open the foreign um, direct investment with open arms, but will be very selectively to choose which sector that allow to have foreign capital to participate, but mostly to reject a large number of foreign capitals to be invested in the country. And also, secondly, China will renew its focus to the global south and also for China's neighborhood, namely Southeast Asia and South Asia, but less so about concerning on this relationship with the G7s. I mean, I clearly uh, sense that Xi Jinping dropped the term constructing a new type of great power relations. That was a reference to China's relationship with the Western liberal democracy. And he has completely abandoned that term. I mean, that's a quite a striking thing to me. Has he replaced it with anything? He replaced it with the Global Development Initiative right. and also the Global Security Initiative. But that's really much about shaping the global governance agenda in the multilateral platform. Arisio, what's this going to mean to other countries? It's interesting how we also see more assertive China in Central Asia, especially after the meeting in Samarkand, where, you know, to be honest, countries understand that Russia is losing this war. It hasn't achieved none of its major objectives. It has alienated, you know, the region uh, and uh, actually opened uh, a way for third parties, such as Turkey, especially with the Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict and uh, China. Uh, there was quite striking that statement that China will protect territorial integrity of Kazakhstan. I mean, it's one thing to say something in a private meeting and another to make it absolutely uh, evident and being so vocal about who is now here coming also as a player uh, in the security uh, dimension of Central Asia, whereas before China was just positioning itself as an economic actor, building, uh, you know, roads, pipelines and trading, uh, exerting that power. Here, China came with actually hard power to Central Asia and Putin will have to deal with it one way or the other. But I think that's also a quiet protest of what Putin has done in Ukraine and China express is the dissatisfaction towards Putin. Gideon, what's it going to mean economically for us? Have this, as you said, this kind of um, you know, bifurcation, this, this distance between these two huge economies. I think we're only beginning to think through the implications because if you think of it in terms of big companies, they've sort of, everybody's put China at the centre of their strategy, multinationals. I was talking at an FT conference to the general counsel for Vodafone, who was explaining how after Britain changed its position on Huawei and 5G three years ago, they'd really had to rethink their strategy because they had actually been semi-encouraged by the government to work with Huawei. And that was just the beginning of, of this kind of thing. And, you know, another multinational executive said to me, you know, talking about phones, that eventually we're all going to be carrying two phones, one that works in the sort of Chinese tech world and one that works in the Western tech world. There is this, but it's going to be more than inconvenience because the the I think in the old world, the old globalized world, uh, everything was maximized for efficiency, really. You would construct these complex supply chains that would that would bring costs down and ultimately give the consumer the best deal. And now people are thinking about security. They're thinking about, as they say, not ju just in time, but just in case. And that means ultimately higher costs. It's a less efficient way of doing business. And things that we've been expecting to do very easily, not being able to. I was talking to the British 
government's um, uh, uh, strategic planning on this kind of thing. And just trying to map out what the influence of China is in the economy. Obviously, some things are obvious, like universities and students, but not simple to know what to do about those. Some really very complicated and extensive, like the technology, the communications technology, and so on. But the sense, as you said, after decades of the British government trying to have it both ways, encouraging ties with China, but trying to keep um, a space in which it could say tough things about human rights and or about Taiwan and so on, trying for that ambivalence. But um, now being confronted with the question of what happens if we do have to um, shut out some things. Yeah. And I think it's not just the human rights thing. I mean, I, I think that is important, and Hong Kong has changed the atmosphere here in the UK. But frankly, it's pressure from the United States. If you think of the, the US got here three or four years ahead of the UK and the European Union. And that Huawei decision was made under intense American pressure. Now I think actually there's more of a shared analysis between the British and the Europeans and the Americans. But the, Americans the, the, the British one has got tougher. If yeah. You like. It's moved towards Yeah, I mean, I don't Washington know whether we, we, we've internalized the Washington view because we don't really have any alternative. But that does seem to be what happens. Uh, it'll be interesting, though, to see if the Europeans, say, follow the Americans on this semiconductor stuff. Well, I think it's also about changing perceptions towards China because in the past, I mean, the image of China is the um, the hub of manufacturing in the world, world factory producing cheap, uh, lower end manufacturing products. But nowadays, what China's trying to sell is trying to sell is very advanced products like electric vehicles, mm. telecom equipments. I mean, these are things naturally should be considered as a critical asset of each every individual country, irrespective of the political system. But now China obviously comes with a different political system and selling those products. And naturally, I think the Western liberal democracies would consider it as a security. Yeah, and, and in fact, we've already begun to see examples that have made people say, oh, this is dangerous. As in when Lithuania got too close to Taiwan, as far as the Chinese were concerned, the Chinese suddenly started insisting that all Lithuanian goods be taken out of anything arriving in China. But Lithuania is part of a, a, a European supply chain. So you realize, actually, if you make yourself dependent on China, you're vulnerable to all sorts of pressure. So it's interesting while we see this rupture or upcoming rupture between China and the U.S.-led global supply chains, we see the opposite with Russia, right? Russia uh, Russia is increasingly supplying more and more energy. For example, the LNG increased almost 50%. That Russia is taking more as, as it's being banned from um, European markets. And that actually helps them to dampen some of the inflation pressure to get this energy at lower cost. Crude, China is also buying almost $100 cheaper from um, Russia than on, on the global markets. So it's, it's a useful um, a partner at this particular moment, how far it can stretch economically uh, and how uh, Russia can actually uh, reinforce or compensate some, some resources or uh, markets, uh, it will be interesting to observe. And that's the one lever that, you know, we talked earlier about, can the rest of the world put pressure on Russia not to use nuclear weapons? I mean, if the Chinese were to say, if you don't do that, we won't buy another drop of Russian oil, that would really kind of wake them up. But I don't see the Chinese saying that. Interestingly, China actually increasing the purchase from Saudi Arabia. I mean, that has always been consistently the number one country that China purchasing oil from, not necessarily Russia. Russia is ranking number three or four. And that position has been consistent, even from the beginning of this invasion towards Ukraine. Arisia, do you feel that it's a relationship that China controls overwhelmingly? Well, China gets an increasing leverage over Russia's, um, you know, 
future, I would say, because uh, Russia is isolated, is a pariah state for the free world. I mean, Biden doesn't want to meet uh, Putin at the G20. is is completely isolated. Uh, of course, there's global south, and there are some countries where Russia can still, you know, show uh, to domestic audiences that it's not completely on its own. But uh, obviously, you know, there's that feeling that eventually Russia may become the vassal state of China. Mm. But I fear that, I mean, China's primary concern is the national security for itself. If it has a Russia that is pro-Western, and right next to its border, I mean, don't forget, this China and Russia share border around 4,500 kilometers. It's the west of Europe. So if Beijing cannot handle Putin government very well, and that would be a, a prime national security threat for, for China. So I think that's the reason why prompt Chinese to take that somehow pro-Russia neutrality stance. Gideon, just taking this right back to this question of your, of your hopes for diplomacy mm-hmm. on, on, on Ukraine. Good for that? Bad for that? I, th- I think that probably bad in the sense that, yes, because China has, you know, Russia is increasingly dependent on China. China is the country with more leverage than any of them. But the difficulty is that the Americans are, as, as we were discussing, actually simultaneously ramping up pressure on China. So it's hard for them to say, oh, we're going to ban all semiconductor, uh, you know, cooperation. Oh, and by the way, can you help us on, on Russia? The Chinese are not going to do that. And if you were looking for optimism, you would not look to the UK at the moment, where we've just had this astonishing resignation of Liz Truss after 40 days in office, making her the shortest serving prime minister in British history. All those figures now coming out. Um There is a lot to talk about. I'm joined here actually by John Pollock, who's the producer of this uh, podcast and is risen to the moment of this drama that is now breaking over Westminster. Hi, John. Hi, Bronwyn. It's great to see you. What are the kind of things that we ought to be asking about this and uh, particularly about Britain's place in the world? I mean, this is the question really about where, where does the United Kingdom stand? What does, it, what does it stand for? Who are its leaders? I think especially in the case of, you know, we've had three prime ministers over the course of the last... One year. Over the last... Well, in one 20, year. 2022, and it's not over yet. And it's unbelievable. So, again, in many ways, it's, I suppose the question is, to, to you as a director of Chatham Houses, and, you know, you encounter so many international figures, how are they perceiving the United Kingdom at this time? They are coming in with a lot of questions and jokes, I have to say, uh, comparing Britain even before uh, the Liz Truss news comparing Britain to all kinds of countries that have an unfortunate revolving door of of leaders. And we're talking about three prime ministers within a year, but if there were a general election, we might even end up with four in 2022. I think it does raise a lot of questions. One of the points I've been making is that uh, some of our institutions have held up very well, better than the drama might imply. Parliament's held up well. Uh, The Conservative Party has told the leader to go, and she's gone. And that is how it's supposed to work for all the, the technicolour, if you like. The Bank of England's actually held up well, said, look, we need to be independent. We need a mandate to fight inflation. We don't want politicians getting involved as Liz Truss was beginning to. That's held up. And I think it will be a long time before a government tries to get round the side of the office for budget responsibility, that independent watchdog of the nation's finances. So some things are there. But there's no question that there is a real sense of uncertainty in the country, and this has really compounded it. We've had the death of the Queen, which really shocked uh, deeply a lot of people. We've had the real worries about inflation, about energy prices, beginnings of strikes now, um, and now this on top, and the sense of Britain being a laughingstock, as one senior diplomat 
uh, from another country put it to me. So an awful lot to play out on this. And this is a question, really, I think, about foreign policy as well. We're an international affairs think tank. In many ways, the United Kingdom does seem adrift in foreign affairs. Brexit seemingly pulled us from the European Union. No trade deal with America to be seen. Trade deals with Australia, potentially. You know, other trade deals in terms of ASEAN. I just wonder now what, what, what foreign policy looks like under the next prime minister after, in the midst of a war in Ukraine, in the case of um, not just climate change, but also a real sense of uncertainty about whether or not the United Kingdom itself survives, Northern Ireland and also, of course, Scotland. Really good questions in there. I think, you know, the, these are the big questions for the next prime minister. And I would advise that person, whoever it is, to start with the position that the UK has taken on Ukraine, because it's, it's not just a very firm position of saying, uh, we're going to support Ukraine with weapons, with aid, uh, with, with moral support, with advocacy in international institutions. But it's a place where Britain has really stood up for its own values, including the rule of law uh, and sovereignty, which some other countries are beginning to question when the UK, for example, started backing away from the treaty it had signed with the EU. I would think then that any prime minister would be well advised to try to repair relations with the European Union. Really, all roads in foreign policy lead to the European Union. It is our biggest trading partner. It affects so many things. And though Liz Truss was sounding more conciliatory, sort of encoded language about the Northern Ireland Protocol, that that bit that we're all now expert in, uh, the, the legacy of Brexit, where do you put the border? question. Um, there does need to be a resolution on that. It's of enormous strain to Northern Ireland itself. It's of a strain, uh, with the, it causes strain with the US, where many, many British prime ministers underestimate how much the US president and Congress care about uh, peace in Northern Ireland. And it obviously gets in the way of all kinds of things that Britain wants to do with the European Union, uh, like joint science programs, sort out fish, uh, sort out security, what about immigration, all this stuff gets backed up. So I think, you know, that those are the starting points. But there's no question that Britain has to do something to repair its standing in the world. And uh, selecting a prime minister who can stay there for um, uh, more like 40 months than uh, 40 days is uh, is going to have to be the first place. There is a lot more we could say on this, and we might indeed delve into that next week. I hesitate to think what might might happen, even in the coming days. But in the meantime, I can point you to my excellent colleagues and all our work. You can find all our podcasts and this one at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Please do leave us a review. I'm going to be saying that every week. And do visit our website for all this work, chathamhouse.org. You'll find all of it there on a website which is beautifully coloured in the shade of blue that is also on our famous front door. And that brings you our terrific team of more than 100 researchers and lots of experts. Next week on Independent Thinking, we'll bring you again a couple of questions that are front of our minds. It might well be, as I was saying, the UK, what it could do, if anything, to retrieve its standing in the world, as the world looks on astounded at this turmoil in one of the oldest democracies. See you next week. 